0: Hello and welcome back to First Act of Podcast from Koshi's Business Builders. I'm Seth Busby and I'm Adam Bob, and this podcast is your window into the great minds of Australia's most game-changing business leaders and ideas people.
1: Otherwise known as Adam Bob and Seth Busby. <laughs> just kidding. Our guests are the types of overachievers who will make your brain shake with their brilliant ideas and fascinating backstories. First Act is all about the secret ingredients behind mad success. And that's a not so subtle hint about today's guest. These conversations dive into the roads traveled, the mistakes made, and lessons learned on the many different journeys of entrepreneurship. Seth, tell us about today's purveyor of good taste. (laughs)
0: Clovis Young is the founder and CEO of one of Australia's tastiest fast food success stories, Mad Mex. Clovis grew up in Southern California and he fell in love with the fresh, bold flavours of Baja Mexican cuisine. And after a stint as a Wall Street equities trader, Clovis followed the way of the guac. He sold his home, he moved to Australia and he launched the first Mad Mex fresh Mexican grill in Sydney's Darlinghurst in 2007. It was a move that would disrupt the local fast food movement with a healthier alternative. And now there are more than 70 locations across the nation and across the ditch. And Clovis, we're so excited to have you here today. So thank you for joining us on
1: First Act.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I love the intro. That was great. Thank you. Uh, it's just wonderful to be here. Thanks.
1: Well, Clovis, we're very excited to find out your secrets of uh, of your, your Mad Max journey. But before we get started, our first act icebreaker is: What is the hottest chili you've ever had, and how did you survive it?
2: I love these icebreakers. I've been enjoying them on your podcast because there's nothing more fun than seeing a successful uh, person who's master of the universe trying to figure out how to answer the left field question. Um, <laughs> it's exactly why we do them. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately this one's quite easy. I signed up to be an ambassador for the children's cancer council and it's a wonderful charity. And as part of that, they do, uh, it's the dare to cure foundation. Uh, and they do kind of a, you can either do a dare like lie in a bed of snakes or you can eat something terrible like a bug, uh, or a witchy grub or put your hand in a box of spiders. But I, uh, I thought maybe I'd try to eat the world's hottest chili. So it was a Carolina reaper, um, and, uh, it seemed like such a good idea when we were kind of spitballing ideas six weeks before the event. And then, you know, the night before I kind of turned to my wife and said, oh my God, this, you know, I'm going to cry on national television. This is a terrible idea. Um, so it was a Carolina Reaper. Um, it was incredibly hot. My entire body started shaking at about two thirds of the way through the chili. And it was you know, probably the size of a, you know, kind of a prune or something. <laughs> um, and, Pretty uncomfortable for you know thirty minutes, and then and then pretty unwell for uh, twenty four hours.
1: My goodness! So, what were you doing to remedy it? Like, did you have to have like only cold, only ice in your mouth for like a while? <laughs> yeah, just gargle milk for for the next yogurt. month.
2: Yeah, well, I was on the way to the event and I, I swung past like a convenience store and I picked up like an avocado, I picked up a tub of yogurt, I had a bottle of milk. I didn't, I wasn't, really. Upset. we eat a lot of chilies, but I'd never really come across chilies that I couldn't handle. But I also hadn't kind of entered the arena of, you know, the kind of extreme heat eaters. So I had a I had a pretty good mix of everything and I tried almost everything. Um, the milk, I think milk's probably the go if you're, if you're really in a pinch. That was hmm. my takeaway.
0: What's that TV show where they challenge people to... Go through and eat all the chilies?
1: Oh I don't know. I I'm I've immediately thought of like Fear Factor or something like that. Or like Oh, I don't know. I don't know what you're thinking. Oh,
0: yes. <laughs> it's funny though because that everyone's really gung ho to begin it, and they think that they can get through them all. And then by the end, they're they're sweating bullets. Oh my gosh!
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I, I watched a couple of videos of uh, you know, kind of the frat boys in the American universities being all tough, and immediately you know they're crying on the sofa. And I was thinking, gosh, that that could very well be me.
0: <laughs> so Clovis. <laughs> Can you take us back to where it all began, your kind of first memories of Mexican food growing up in in Southern California?
2: Yeah, so my father grew up in San Diego and I grew up in Berkeley, so a couple of hours north up in the San Francisco area. But most of our holidays were spent down in San Diego. So, uh, you know, call it five or six years old. We would go down to La Jolla Shores and we'd rent a boogie board for $3 and my parents would get rid of me for the whole day because I'd be in the water nonstop for, you know, for five hours. Um, and the thing about being in the water for five hours is you come out kind of ravenous. So we used to go to a place called Roberto's La Posta, and it was a little kind of a shack in the middle of a parking lot in front of a drugstore. So by modern standards, it was pretty, uh pretty simple setup. Uh, and we buy these carne asada burritos, which is a grilled steak burrito with guacamole, um, and literally mind-blown. You know? So uh, even, you know, we're, we're talking kind of 1980 time frame. Uh, even around then, it was hard to get that kind of food in San Diego, uh, in San Francisco area, uh, or certainly in Berkeley, where we where we were. So uh, that was kind of always something we really looked forward to on those holidays. Um, and yeah, just that kind of so nothing else. Kind of in that early childhood formative period, ever kind of stood out as much as the you know the kind of the perfection of this burrito that would just kind of nail every element and. Typically after eating, you know, um, a one pound or a 500 gram steak burrito as a six year old, you'd pass out for four hours. But it was kind of, uh, the, the pinnacle of eating, uh, as a kid.
1: So after you've kind of, uh, found this, this golden, this burrito that I kind of imagine has this like golden glow around it, this halo, <laughs> You're like, oh! it's uh, been sent from the gods, uh, did you have, do you, did you come from a family where entrepreneur, entrepreneurialism was in your family or was that something that you found as an adult as you as you kind of moved towards the calling
2: of burritos? Yeah, no, my background is quite, uh, my parents had quite a very different um, look at uh, their careers. They were both writers and poets. My father you know, got a PhD in English and taught some university. And my mother ran, uh, my father ran a publishing company, publishing poetry. My mother did a bunch of anthologies of women's poetry in the in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, to my memory, neither of them ever went to work or had a, call it a, a regular nine to five job. Uh, and that was kind of straight through from my whole childhood. So they could have, they had very little interest or valued kind of commercial success very low um, and valued their creative or artistic expression yeah, it was the kind of the pinnacle of what you set out to achieve as a as a human being. So the idea that somehow I ended up kind of going down a more commercial route, uh, working on Wall Street for a period of time, and then uh, moving into from Wall Street to to the Mexican restaurant business couldn't have been any farther from the tree.
0: Yeah, do you think it is? Um often it's a case that kids kind of react to what their parents do and and want to do the opposite. Do you think there was a little bit of that? Because although there was the academic side, like you went and you did a BA in history, but then you went to business school. So was that kind of some of the motivation behind those education choices?
2: Yeah, it wasn't really a reaction against, I don't think. It was more just to kind of follow your interests. My parents never once said to me, we think you should go study this or do this, or um, they were kind of the Borderline hippie in their kind of uh, laissez-faire approach to child rearing, um, so it was really just kind of follow your nose, um, and it just I kind of ended up here through curiosity, I guess. And that curiosity
1: that kind of took you down that you know back to that memory of the you know of the steak burrito that we're talking about. Um, you we hear you almost opened a Mexican restaurant in Boston in the mid '90s, but instead your career kind of went into Wall Street. Uh, do you regret that? Was it the right call? What what happened there?
2: Yeah, I mean, I might even go back a step because in university and high school, I was really obsessed with skiing and ski racing and I was fairly successful as an alpine skier. And I think leaving then, leaving university without a kind of clear direction, you kind of have a bit of a panic attack around, you know, you, you've kind of achieved some level of success and you, you think of yourself as somewhat successful and then you realize you are... You couldn't be any closer to the bottom of the uh, the, uh, ladder in terms of, you know, what's next. Um, I brought that passion for Mexican food from childhood in California through to moving to Massachusetts kind of as an early teenager. Um, And I was always kind of obsessed with Mexican food. Uh, When Taco Bell opened up in Maine, I was in the car park at 4 a.m. and I was the first guy to get a taco. So I I have had a kind of a, a taco fetish. For, you know for multiple <laughs> decades um, yes I, w- I went to work for a company called fidelity uh, I had I saw somebody do something interesting and I wanted to do Mexican food and it was probably one of the few times when I had enough self-awareness to realize that I had the passion but I actually didn't have the skills uh, and I think if I had tried to do that business in Boston at 21 years old I probably would have stuffed it up because it would it would have just been a bit outside of my Um, there was too many things I didn't know how to do. Um, So I I postponed it and kind of backed away from it.
0: Let's jump forward then to uh, your move to Australia in 2006. So you and your wife, Angela, were living in Florida. What what made you think, actually, let's go to Australia? Australia looks like a a great land of opportunity for, for business and life.
2: Yeah, so I ended up back in... Uh, getting an MBA. And the surprise thing with an MBA in in, uh, Pennsylvania was that uh, I fell in love with business. I thought I'd end up back in Wall Street. Uh, And I realized then with the business degree that business is quite varied. and, And part of the fun of business is the variation. I ended up doing, helping a friend start a business in Florida for a couple of years. And when that kind of project ran, ran its course, I was sitting there wondering what to do next. And It kept coming back to me, this idea about the first burrito, the Mexican restaurant possibility in Boston. And, you know, how many years do you have to listen to the voice in the back of your head before you say, I need to put this to rest somehow? So we we started thinking about the Mexican food and and it just happened that we went to visit my uh, now ex-wife's family in Sydney. And as part of that trip, I made a point of going and visiting every Mexican restaurant that I could find from the eastern suburbs to North, you know, North Sydney to kind of the manly area. And what was really clear was that what we kind of thought of as Mexican, the you know, the burritos, the tacos, the quick, casual dining, um, fast, casual kind of concepts didn't exist. Right. There were there were Montezumas and those kind of restaurants where you could take your whole family and and get a big plate of food. But there was nothing that kind of matched our vision for what, what Mexicans should be. Um, So we sold two houses, we sold three cars. We put the dog on a plane, put the dog into quarantine for 30 or 90 days and moved to Australia really with this idea that we were going to open a Mexican restaurant um, and also kind of praying that we'd figure out how to, how to make that work.
1: So business owners often have these great stories of an aha moment uh, when they came up with their big idea or where you, you're like ah okay right we know this is going to be this this is something I have to do. What do you th- what was the Mad Max aha moment for you? Was it when you had landed in Australia or was it before you left?
2: Yeah, it, I think one of my one of my good friends who's a fellow entrepreneur loves this idea that you've got to follow the energy. If, if if something is energizing and it gets you excited, there's something in that right. So when we kind of did the scouting and we looked around. Uh, Sydney, um, and went back and thought about it and kind of contemplated options. There was just so much energy and excitement behind this idea. And it was risky and it was scary. And um, you could argue that it was incredibly dumb. You know, who moves to a foreign country where you've visited for 10 days to open a restaurant, uh, which is an industry you're not proficient in? Uh, You know, it, it doesn't doesn't meet the threshold for your average college uh, you know kind of advisors recommendation for what to do next in your career so it was, it was all those things exciting and scary I, I think when we first when I first felt like we'd kind of cracked it was uh, it sounds kind of simple now but um, we opened up the restaurant in Darlinghurst uh, we finally broke five thousand dollars in sales in a single day it was around the time when you know guys like uh, lead singer for Wolf mother were coming in and Russell Crowe would pop in sometimes and you kind of, but but hitting that $5,000 number made us think not only is, you know, are we getting a bit of kind of popular attention, but there might actually be a revenue model that makes this thing work. Because for the first, you know, 6, 12, 18 months, I think we probably, you know, burned through a pile of cash just trying to get to the point where we could figure out what we were doing.
0: Mm. So. You know you've you've done that MBA, you've got the the knowledge, but not necessarily the practical experience. So and as you said, you'd never run a hospitality business before. So what were the kind of business blind spots that you encountered?
2: I did approach everything with kind of a blank slate which is to say I need to figure out how this works and that works in each piece. And I kind of broke it down in my mind that there were, you know, kind of 10 or 20 modules that had to plug in together to make the machine work. So that's kind of the way my brain naturally works. And I kind of identified, you know, we have to figure out how to do produce. We have to figure out how to do store design. All these components have to have to come together. Um, that said made just incredible mistakes, not having more experience, you uh, you know, We ran labor costs around 50%. And traditionally in a business like ours, you need your labor to be roughly 30%. So we were winning customers and we were uh, very happy with how the business kind of was performing from a PR and from a customer acquisition. But we we really didn't know how to run a business, a food business. We knew how to make great product and how to make customers happy. Um, And it wasn't really until I brought in my first kind of Experienced food operations guy to help run the business. That we kind of he said, "Jesus, you you know, love the product." I've never seen people more excited to walk into a restaurant. I've never seen people drag their friends in by their hands and say, "You got to try this." But so all oh, that's great. But you can't have nine people. <laughs> you got to have seven <laughs> people, and you gotta you gotta get your rosters right. So I think you know the fine tuning. Uh, this this business is it's a it's a tough, competitive, narrow uh, margin business and you really need to think about how you set it up to to kind of get the right profitability and and also then to deliver uh, hopefully a great customer experience and a great product but you really have to work pretty hard to make sure that the machine is designed to to kind of break even and make some money because it's not there's not a there's not a, a fat profit margin to make mistakes with
1: a lot of that means you as the entrepreneur kind of going it's not just on me. It's about all of those people who have kind of knowledge in areas that I don't have um, and building that network and having the right people around you to be able to kind of fill those gaps of knowledge, right? Like to be able to go, okay, I'm going to make mistakes here, but how do I recover from them with the right people with the right advice?
2: Yeah, I think that is true. Um, By my nature, I'm a bit of a control freak or someone that really wants to understand how every little piece of it works. So I definitely dove into things that, and I used uh, people's advice and learning. And I, I pulled a lot of information out of those kind of those kind of people. Um, but I think what we also did, was we kind of understood that you, you got to grow the brand, you got to grow the revenue, you got to grow the reputation. And there are certain things we know we can fix later. We know we can get the cost of goods down. We can find better ways to produce the product um, at scale once we get to three stores or five stores and we just have to wear that kind of startup pain. And that was probably where the MBA kind of helped. We didn't go into the first store saying, you know, we have to design a store that's going to have some substandard product because of our small scale. We went and saying, we're going to get the product perfect and we will figure out over time how to make this thing profitable. So we didn't make any any money for about no, three or four years. Um, and then any money we did make, we put into Uh, Building another store.
0: Hmm. We'll be back with more from MadMex co founder Clovis Young after this short
2: break. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
0: And we're back with Clovis from Max. So you and Angela ran the business together. Um, what was it like to run such a rapidly growing business with someone who was not just your business partner, but your life partner at the time?
2: It was chaotic. Um, we threw in another curveball. We had our first child two days before we opened the first restaurant. So uh, we did a lot of the pre work together. We got a, the concept. We worked with the branding, the agencies, the recipe testing, all the kind of proof of concept pre-opening work together. Um, and then, uh, and then uh, the, with the first child, that was kind of that threw a big spanner in the work. So I, I I picked up a lot of the heavy lifting in the in the first period. Um, I think we did find that. People have their natural skills, and I was so one hundred percent involved. And my uh, Angela was a brilliant writer and kind of understood the PR and the marketing side of the business. So she naturally gravitated to a piece that was quite time consuming and, and outside of the daily operations of running the restaurant. And I really was kind of one hundred percent focused on making sure the machine worked. You know, did people show up? Did you know? Was the product good? Was the customer service great? Um, so we did divide it up in that way. Mostly successfully, but you know, little little tension points along the way. Ah,
0: tell us more tension
1: points. Well, we can imagine like having a <laughs> having a child in the midst of all of that because you're you're scaling so rapidly, and I think this is something that a lot of business owners can relate to: is that your personal life does, you know, is affected if you if think so much is happening and you're giving so much to your work, and then you've also got your home life there's so there's a lot of priorities like vying for your number one priority right
2: i think in this kind of endeavor I, my experience has been that there's a someone has to be 110 committed and they they have to live and breathe every second of it and some and, and in a partnership then one other person if, a, if there's a second partner they need to have a very clear mandate on how they can take a load off the other person who's just 100 percent committed and we did that pretty well um but my yeah my one of the pieces of advice we got from Angela's stepfather, who was a very successful man, Jim Fleming, who used to run a chain of supermarkets called Jewel, is he said the only advice I can give you is put your nose down, bum up, five years. If you work your bloody guts out for five years, and then and only then pick your head up and look around, only then will you know if you've been successful. There's 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 nothing between that starting point and some significant amount of uh, blood sweat and tears um that you're going to have any clue as to whether or not you've you've made it and that was really great advice because you we didn't even stop to think you know we celebrated along the way but we didn't um stop to think that we'd achieved anything of permanence um it wasn't for at least five or six years before we kind of got to the point where we said I, we think we've made it over that first that first patch
1: that's really interesting because that concept of success is something that we have spent a lot of time talking with different entrepreneurs about on this podcast and and what you personally view as successful, you know, inside, like when you go home, you know, when you're thinking, hey, what is that? What is this? How do I fit? What do I judge as by success to mean? You know, it can be really different from what other people see on the outside, you know?
2: yeah it's certainly you know there's different kinds of fun it certainly wasn't a uh, sip of margarita by the side of the pool kind of fun mm-hmm. but, you know we had we 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 both prioritized children we had uh, then a second child you know 18 months later so if it wasn't work it was kids and that was kind of the the extent of our universe uh and that's that's okay right i, I don't think you can have it all if you want to do something hard and that's 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 okay but my experience, whether it was ski racing or whether it was you know, Mad Max or other ventures is I've only really ever been successful if I've been able to kind of shut off everything outside of this core focus and get 100% in the zone and just be all in. And when you can do that, then you can really kind of not many people can find that kind of passion, drive, focus. If you can do that passion, drive, focus for an extended period of time called 18 months or, or two or three years, Um, That really does give you a massive advantage over people who are kind of doing it as part of a a portfolio of things that they're interested in.
0: Mm. So did you bootstrap the business initially?
2: Yeah, 100%. um, I was fortunate enough I worked for a period of time on Wall Street and I made a bit of money in that respect and we did some housing. and So we came with a little bit of seed capital um, and we were able to get to about three restaurants without bringing any partners in. Uh, and then we had a really tough decision, which was there's no way we could do anything else. We, you know, we're kind of close to tapped out. So the options were you bring in an investor uh, who looks at a P&L that you know doesn't it's not wildly successful, um, but there's signs of positive news, or we looked at franchising. So that really the franchising came out of a you know you have to choose a path, and franchising uh, solved a couple of issues for us. One was it kind of created capital. To expand, uh, and we also found it very difficult to find great managers for these restaurants. So if you get a someone who's got some experience, who's got the capital, they've got their their home on the line, and they're passionate about the product. Um, it did solve then a human resources kind of question for us. So we found that that combination of um, allowing us to retain kind of the ownership of the business and getting partners who were equally passionate to us was a really was a really good combination.
1: And I know um, in more recent years, you had Singapore investors for a few years, but now Mad Max is fully Australian owned again. What did you learn from that experience?
2: A couple of learnings. I think for our kinds of businesses that are, you know, um, brands, local brands, things that have kind of a, an iconic nature in their community, going from one country to another country is, you know, it's, it's a complete, brand new startup right uh, even going taking mad max from sydney to melbourne is like a new country in terms of oh there's five million people that have never heard of you or if you go to perth you're it's really a new country but you take that that kind of framework and you go to singapore it's you know three times more kind of new right so it's you really there, there isn't this kind of well. We're, we've been successful here, and therefore people are going to love it automatically. You have to do all the same things. You have to create the same magic in that in that foreign country to kind of win that new market. We see it a lot with brands coming into Australia, right? Um, and you look around. I'm not picking on anyone, but Joe's the Juice is a brand that popped up about five years ago, and they're in the city and they're at the airport. Uh, very successful in, in America, but. I don't know that they ever, ever really captured people's imaginations uh, here. And I think that th- there's a real learning in terms of how do you launch these things so that you get penetrate the zeitgeist because people are pretty busy. They already have their favorites. And the other part is, you know, partnerships are complicated. Uh, this partnership was going really well. And unfortunately, my business partner had a health issue. It came up and uh, rendered him kind of incapacitated, or unable to participate in the business. So that was that was the main road bump we hit
0: just circle back on that um the idea of the zeitgeist um how do you then choose you know what what where to open up like whether it be a new market like overseas or whether it's where you're going to do a new new south wales store like what's the the reasoning behind that
2: we borrowed a concept from uh, a brand that we think is brilliant, grilled and do the burgers. Um, oh, and they've that. got, a, they've got a concept around, you know, you don't build a store or you don't open a store. You can, you kind of plant a store like a tree, you plant a tree in the neighborhood and then you need to water that tree, you know, it, it, and it will grow. And you got to add love, customer love and you got to add great products and great service. And you really have to integrate yourself into whatever that community is. Um, and restaurants are inherently kind of local area businesses, right? It's especially our kind of businesses. So um, wherever you end up, you need to figure out who your immediate customers are and then the next kind of ring around that and try to figure out how to win that set of hearts and minds. And then you kind of expand from there. Um, we, you know, nowadays we use big data to kind of give us some insights around whether or not we think a location might be, spec- you know, might be successful. But in the early days, it was, you know, do these people look like the kind of people who are going to be excited when we open up? Is it busy enough? Is the visibility good enough? It's a number of factors, but um, I think the big learning, generally speaking, is you don't want to spread yourself too thin. You kind of want to grow kind of in rings if you can move from the CBD of Sydney to the inner west, but you don't want to just go from Sydney to Newcastle because you're successful in Sydney and then obviously Newcastle will work it really is it's a better strategy to kind of organically grow uh, almost in in sequence hmm.
0: like a tree in circles
2: <laughs> yeah like a tree in circles i think that, you know it's a good analogy and i think it's it, it proves it proves valuable
1: yeah it's it's very much looking at your locations as communities and not just another yes just another shop you know or another another shop window it's going Okay, what role are we playing in that community?
0: Hmm. We've heard that before from other entrepreneurs that the importance of really embedding yourself into the community that you're operating in.
2: It's such a different model to say an online store, and I think the way the world's evolved over the last decade has kind of really changed that dynamic. You can open up a you know a, a Shopify account and provide a service, and you can do online services, but there, there's still something in that bricks and mortar uh experience that you know th- that renders all of those new technologies kind of ineffective it really comes back to community to locals and you know we we sell 250 burritos a day so you need to have you know think about it. people might come in once a month so it really has to be you have to win over twenty thousand customers to be successful it's not like three people in one sale it's you know it's it's a it's, it has to have a, a mass market appeal and, and you have to win a lot of hearts and minds which is which is important.
0: Mm. And I, I know you just kind of mentioned online and, and to take that a little bit further, but because of COVID we have seen this massive explosion in the home delivery service. So how did that change the way Mad Mex actually operated as a business?
2: It was beginning and there was, you know, we had um, a couple of delivery was in the market before COVID, but it was obviously a, just a massive, uh, it was a, it was a life raft really. Um, mm-hmm. For a lot of businesses, you know, we went from, say, 10 or 15 percent of our sales mix would be delivery to 65 percent for big chunks of periods of time. Um, and now it's kind of settled down closer to, say, 20 percent. So double where it was before before COVID. Um, it, everything new comes with a cost. It comes with a service cost. The cost for delivery was, is outrageous. Um, and then there's all kinds of costs in the back end. We've got to reconcile all these new data sources and, you know, the accounting cost is a hidden cost. And, um, and then training people how to deliver that service. Cause we, we've, we've spent 10 years, make sure we smile and thank the customer and engage with people and look after people. And all of a sudden we're looking after a product that goes into a paper bag and then we lose control of it. So how do we control that experience as it relates to that product going into the bag and then how it gets delivered to, uh, the customer, uh, all just interesting opportunities to figure out how to crack that small but important kind of piece of the puzzle. Um, I think entrepreneurship generally is about identifying the problem, figuring out what the puzzle is, trying to figure out the best way to solve the puzzle, trying it, uh, and then realizing you're probably not going to get it 100% right, and then trying to go back and fix that puzzle again or do it slightly better. and and then trying to get to a point where that piece is solved to the point where you can go on and focus on the next big uh, puzzle. And there's always something around the corner that's going to demand your attention.
1: Well, Clovis, you've raised some really good points about how, like it is, especially the past couple of years, it has been kind of a whole bunch of new puzzles to to crack for anybody who runs their business, no matter how big or small, you know, figuring out how to make money out of something when maybe you're you're not getting as much foot traffic and everyone's at home. and There's all sorts of things that are coming up, but I I'm just want to dig a little bit into that whole thing about the whole area of customer experience. We've had this explosion in takeaway and delivery, this demand for I want it now, 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 now. And then you've also got the eat-in customer experience, the dine-in experience. Um, it's something a lot of food businesses would have to juggle. What What would your advice be about making sure that you're not kind of dropping standards on either front?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the the in restaurant or that kind of face to face customer has to be your priority at any given second, right? Um, if my food arrives five minutes late uh, and I'm watching TV, I'm not nearly as stressed out as if I'm standing there watching people ignore me or or whatever whatever the kind of the, that experience would be like. So. You know, really, when you have the opportunity to engage with another human being face to face, every one of those interactions is is a really important opportunity and something that has to be the priority. Um, and then I think being realistic, you know, uh, if the models change or if you need to add another resource, another person to make sure you can execute those two things, then don't treat them as one thing. Say, well, we need to execute two things well. What does it take to do two things well? It might mean that we need to change the roster or the structure or the people or the way we configure something. Let's figure out how to get that piece right. Let's make sure we don't sacrifice the the other, in in, in this instance, the in-restaurant experience. Um, but dividing them up and saying these are two separate challenges. We're not going to try to figure out how to combine them and get a 60 or 70 or 80 percent good on both. Let's make sure we get 100 on the first one and separate that thought out and get a 95 on the second one. If that's the secondary priority, um, but not to con- not to confuse those two kind of challenges. Mm.
0: I imagine one of the other challenges that would have come up during COVID, and not just because of COVID, but also the bushfires, the floods. Product you deal in in fresh ingredients, so sourcing fresh ingredients at times must have been a challenge. And what kind of logistics issues have you faced, and how have you kind of looked to solve them?
2: When when COVID first hit, understandably, everyone, including myself, was kind of terrified, right? What does this mean? What's going to happen? Uh, will we keep our jobs? All these things, right? Um, And we had kind of an all hands meeting and I said something to the effect of. This is scary, yes, but it's also probably the most interesting, the most fun, the most challenging, the most the best opportunity for us as people who are running this business. And that's a team of 30 people. This is our opportunity. This is our test. This is our chance to prove that we're everything we think we can be as business leaders or managers or entrepreneurs. So. Yes, it's scary, but let's think about it from this perspective. It, you know, it's not boring. The worst thing in life is to be bored. So this is not boring. It's a great opportunity. Let's go out and figure out how to make things happen. And everyone's got permission to do stuff faster, quicker, and riskier than we've ever done it before. So if you used to have a six-week project to get approval for a marketing campaign, <clears throat> you now have delegation of authority. You can do that in 24 hours. Make sure you show one other person. So we kind of we, we went to a real kind of scramble approach. And it was it was just magic watching the team and people kind of just they understood what we needed as a brand. They, we, they understood kind of what what we were trying to achieve. And then that kind of dispersed autonomy meant that we got stuff done in a fraction of the time that would have normally taken us in our kind of you know business as usual model. Um, international shipping has been. The hardest piece in terms because we don't have many levers to press you know if the container gets on a ship and then uh, the ship decides to go to south africa it's really hard to figure out how to replace that container so the i feel a huge amount of uh, appreciation also kind of <laughs> sympathy for our, our supply chain teams and we've got great partners and that's the other piece you everyone kind of had to step up our supply chain partners for fresh produce have done just an amazing job and they were flying uh, or visiting farms and, and and making sure that we had what we needed on their own initiative, but, but really proactive in terms of make sure we kept the, the machine going.
1: I think a lot of leaders had to communicate this sort of sense of calm and we've got this under control during that period of time. Does that come naturally to you, uh, being a, a kind of that solid leader or is it something that you kind of need that you draw inspiration from others from?
2: I probably have this kind of a slightly higher risk tolerance. Um, I probably get more energized by the fear than paralyzed by the fear. Um, and I also spent a couple of years on Wall Street. And part of what you do as an equity trader is you're managing risk and you're trying to control your emotions and making good, thoughtful decisions, even though you know, some position might be going against you. So I probably had more practice managing risk and emotions than, than maybe some other people, but I found it invigorating until it became exhausting. Though there were periods of time when you kind of said, man, this how much longer can this go on? You, you can't keep working at this level or this pace. Uh, and the same goes for the team. And I think the other factor that we have to deal with as a franchise business is we've, you know, we kind of understand our house and, and that we've kind of got our pieces in place and we've kind of made provisions to deal with whatever the circumstances might be. Uh, and then you got forty franchisees who have all kinds of different circumstances. That you know they've got their business. So the thing I'm probably most proud of about how the team kind of rallied is we just delivered, I think, an exceptional world class level of service to our franchise network. Um, we provided them more information. We provided more calls, more feedback. How do you get on JobKeeper? How do you get on JobSaver? How, you know, how are we going to support the landlords? And we stepped up and just tried to take as much of the pressure off them, or at least give them the tools they needed. Um, because just because I can handle some, a certain amount of stress or the teams in a certain place, um, you have to consider that it's, you know, it's quite, a, quite a number of people in the organization that have their own circumstances. And just because I feel okay, doesn't mean that the business is in a good place.
0: Mm. Yeah, I imagine you'd have quite a high tolerance to burnout from your days on Wall Street. But how do you deal with burnout now?
2: When I'm doing it well, I'm exercising and I'm going out mountain biking or riding a dirt bike. That's probably my my favorite way to burn off steam is to get out in the woods and rip around on, on a dirt bike. Um, and if I do it badly, I succumb to the kind of the temptation of having two glasses of wine, and watching TV, and, and you know, it kind of a negative cycle.
1: <laughs> and you, you've got your dog Baxter. Well, dogs are great for preventing burnout.
2: Yeah, yeah, we we got very fortunate. We bought the dog three months before COVID, so not only do we have we had the the great resource, but we you know we paid a fair price. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they're worth they're worth every cent. I can tell you
2: that. Yeah, yeah.
1: Now, look, we don't have much to more time with you, unfortunately. But just before we wrap up, look, I just want to dig into how, you know, one of Mad Max's calling cards is that you don't have secret recipes. You are not recipes and ingredients are all online. You're innovated with this online nutrition calculator so people can see exactly what they're putting in their systems. Why is that level of transparency so important to you and how you do business?
2: Yeah, I think... You know maybe it was growing up with hippie parents who were poets and kind of valued the creative art more than the economic outcome but i guess i've always come to mad max business as uh, you know my great artistic work if you will um and and in the things that i consider valuable um i think it's important that people get good healthy food that they can trust and and when i look around the marketplace i don't always see that that's the case and i it, um, one of my motivations for Mad Max was kind of to try to provide an alternative to what might be the unhealthy options that are, that are ubiquitous. So somewhere in that combination of belief that, you know, honesty, transparency, how we deal with each other, honestly, and transparently is important. What you put in your system should be clear and honest to you. And, and then how do we make it easy for you to have healthy choices that, you know, that, that tastes great. you know. No one wants to eat a spinach salad every day. So, you know, how do we do what well, some people do? But um, you know, how do we combine those kind of those values into something that every single day when we hand somebody the product, we feel good and proud uh, and also confident that they're better off for having made the choice to come to us as opposed to somewhere else?
0: Mm. So great. I love, I love your business model. Anyway, we've just about run out of time, I'm afraid, Clovis. So I'd just like to say thank you again so much for joining us.
2: Uh, listen, thank you, guys. It's super fun. Uh, love the opportunity. Love the show. I love what you guys are doing. So thank you so much for having me.
1: Oh, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. You
0: can find out more about Mad Max at madmax.com.au. Not to be confused with Mad Max, the movie.
1: <laughs> <laughs> good, good movie. Yes. But, um, yeah, I would say you'd have um, Mad Max is where you're going to get your your, your, your get tasty, technique. You watch Mad Max while... Well. Yeah, while mix. eating your mas? Good good.
0: Thank you again <laughs> for listening, and join us again in two weeks for another fantastic first act conversation.